Hello and welcome back to the JumboCast podcast. My name is Andrew Howe and I'm happy to be back here as your host this week, bringing you the inside scoop of all things sports on the hill and off. Once again, we want to thank you all for tuning in and a quick shout out to everyone here at JumboCast who make this show possible. With the 2020 presidential election taking a stranglehold on the news and all of our minds this entire week, it's easy to forget about sports during this crazy time. However, as always, there's a lot of sports news to talk about, and hopefully this can serve as a bit of distraction from all the vote counts and lawsuits that you're hearing about. With Major League Baseball's COVID-shortened season in the books, we'll be joined by Daniel Mahoney to analyze the highly anticipated MLB awards and to hear his thoughts on the upcoming free agency period. We'll also be joined once again by JumboCast NFL expert and Philadelphia Eagles enthusiast Trevor Russo to recap week eight of the NFL, as well as to preview the upcoming games as the season hits its halfway point. But first, we have a brand new segment of the Tufts Athletes Corner. Please welcome Sam Brill and Henry Stahl as they have a conversation with members of the Jumbo Volleyball team. Take it away, guys. Thanks for having us, Andrew. And as you said before, I'm Sam Brill, joined here by Henry Stahl. Hey, Andrew. Good to be back. We're joined with uh, Grace and Maya, a middle and outside for the volleyball team, respectively. Uh, and before we talk about this year, can you guys give us a little rewind and talk about how winning the NESCAT championship was in your first year on the team? Yeah, thank you for having us. Um, it was an awesome opportunity last year to win the NESCAT championship. Um, coming in, we knew that the 2018 season hadn't been as successful as the team wanted it to be. But that didn't affect our play last year. We had a really strong leadership squad of our upperclassmen. Yeah, so I think we had um, a really great opportunity to come in as freshmen and have basically the whole season set up for us. Um, but yeah, everyone was 100% dedicated all, all in. We all were on the same page on how we wanted to perform that season, and we did it. So um, it was really awesome to be a part of. Right. You talked a lot about leadership. Uh, a few captains leaving, some all NESCAC players, a few years running. Uh, how is it adjusting without those team leaders this year? Um, so all of our seniors last year were huge presences, both on the court and um, in the program as well. Um, and, you know, it's definitely going to be a little different not having them here, but I definitely think that we're ready. Um, all of the returners are 100% ready to step into those leadership roles, and we have seven amazing new freshmen. Um, so. I'm, uh, I'm excited. We're looking good. So you've seen what it's like to be in season. How stressful is it on your work inside the classroom and on your play on the court, both without the seniors this year from last year and both in season having to worry about your play? Yeah, so definitely coming into season last year, there were some stressful times, but we all found it very doable, and the upperclassmen were also able to help us with like class registration, which professors to take, and time management strategies. And so it's a little different this year. There's not quite as much volleyball to go to, so we all have more free time. Um, a lot of taking the opportunity to sign up for more and harder classes, which is awesome. But yeah, it's all been very doable so far this season and last. Um, just to add on top of that, I actually prefer to be in season in terms of like schoolwork and being productive. Um, having a stricter schedule kind of just keeps me on track, uh, prevents procrastination. So um, yeah, a lot more productive. And just, yeah. So now let's move further into the winter of last year and talk about your off season. What does that training regimen usually look like as a team? Um, so traditionally we'll have uh, three team lifts a week, um, so usually early mornings to work around class schedules, uh, maybe a Friday afternoon, 
Um, and then we'll try and participate in as many open gyms as possible throughout the week. Um, yeah, obviously no coaches, but we try and get in as, and to play together as much as possible. But yeah, usually the spring is a lot more open for us to focus on academics and other activities on campus. Um, but we still are given the opportunity to stay in shape and play together as much as possible, which is great. So. Now with volleyball being a fall sport, you have this whole summer uh, to prepare. How was playing volleyball or not playing volleyball because of COVID uh, in the summer of 2020? Yeah, I was actually really lucky. My home state didn't have as many COVID cases as some other places. So I was able to play outside. So grass and sand volleyball a good amount of the summer. Obviously I wasn't able to go indoors as much as I usually would, but I was still really grateful for the opportunity to play outside as much as I could. Yeah, San Diego, um, I mean, my state wasn't doing too well, but San Diego County was fairly good in terms of uh, COVID cases. So gyms were actually open for the first few months of quarantine. Um, so I was really lucky. I was able to play indoors with my old um, high school club team for about two months until June. But yeah, I was able to get a few practices in. Um, but once, you know, regulations got stricter, um, it moved to more outside. So I played as much beach and grass as possible as well. Uh, not nearly as much as we would in a normal year, but um, it was still enough to you know, get touches, stay, stay in shape, so. And what other opportunities were you finding to stay in shape? So basically, I'm from Minnesota and our gyms weren't open over the summer, but our trainers sent us this packet of workouts that didn't require any equipment. So we were all able to do that. And then I got creative and did some like jump roping, like going on runs, little YouTube workouts, stuff like that, just to stay in shape. And then, like I said, playing volleyball outside. Those were the two big things for me over the summer. Yeah, everyone was given the opportunity to uh, stick to the workout plans that we were given by our trainers um, with like, you know, body weight or household work or household objects for weights. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think everyone else got pretty creative with just figuring out how to stay active uh, with their own restrictions. So, yeah. So the goal is obviously to progress each year, both individually and as a team. And coming back to campus, do you feel that you guys have done that? And do you think that your teammates have done the same? Yeah, I would say definitely as a team and individually, we've all developed a lot. And this year is unique because we've had some opportunities to scrimmage and play like six on six in practice. But I'd say the main focus has been technical improvement for all of us. So everyone's been able to like pick a few things that they want to personally improve on. It's been awesome to see when we do get the opportunity to scrimmage to see those things in action. So now you mentioned that you guys have been doing a lot more technical work in practice. Walk me through what your practices look like now. Um, so obviously our practices are, you know, formatted a little differently than they would in a typical year um, with all the COVID restrictions. Um, so traditionally we'll start off with you know, warm up, maybe move into some drills. Um, for a while, we were finding creative ways to be able to play while also staying socially distant and uh, staying within our cohorts. Um, for a while, we were able to play sixes, which, you know, live play, which is really great. Um, since then, it's been restricted a little more, so we can't really do that as much. Um, but yeah, so, you know, obviously things are different, but for the most part, our practices are the same length. We're still getting in just as many, like, you know, touches as we typically would. So. We're, we're very lucky in terms of that. So you mentioned playing some sixes. Uh, is that the closest you've been to simulating that game experience? Obviously you can't get the crowd in there. You can't have a rival team come to really bring you to the next level. But what has been that one motivation to 
get you to play on a game time level? Yeah, I would say Sixes is probably the most similar we've had to a game. Um, we've been making some modifications with the plays we run, so with different sets to hitters, and we just change them so everyone stays six feet apart. But then also one thing we did was we had a virtual volleyball game <laughs> against, I think it was Brandeis. Brandeis, where, yeah. yeah. <laughs> where we just, we had so like a series of ball control drills and just competed against them and sent our totals in just to see who won, which was really fun. Yeah. yeah. Just creative ways to get competitive play in. Yeah. And I think another thing too is we've, uh, on Saturdays, we start we started setting up our game court. So um, usually we'll have two practice courts set up um, during the week, but on Saturday, it's just one big one. Um, and although it's very empty compared to normal games, it, it kind of simulates that um game time feel so um it's been a lot of fun and you know i think we're all just kind of you know waiting for our chance to get back into it but you know practicing a lot so yeah and how is the vibe with the rest of the team both on and off the court i know you have a lot of incoming players a lot of outgoing players uh how has that been um it's definitely been a challenge um to you know integrate everyone the way we would like to. I think usually we have um, so much more time to spend together, um, you know, on top of each other 24 seven with preseason and season and bus rides and staying in hotels. And um, without all of that, it's been, it's been hard, but we're trying to find our own creative ways to all get together and, you know, virtually sometimes in small groups, um, trying to get to know at least all of the freshmen, you know, um, you know, hang out with our upperclassmen and have everyone, you know, I guess reestablish those connections that we had last year and create new ones with our incoming freshmen. So, yeah, it's been it's been hard, but we're we're getting there. <laughs> so, aside from the the team competitions, travel, staying in hotels, and being with your teammates all the time, is there anything that you feel is missing? Um, like Maya said, it's definitely different from last year, but I think all of us are doing our best to make those connections again. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't really, aside from, you know, yeah, games, traveling, all of that, um, there isn't that much missing yeah. otherwise. Like, we're know, making we're, the best of the situation we have, yeah. which is awesome. Awesome. Well, that's all we have for you guys. Thanks for joining us today on the JumboCast podcast, again, with Grace and Maya, a middle and outside hitter for the Tufts Jumbos volleyball team. And I'm joined here with Henry Stahl. And that just about wraps up our Athletes Corner. We'll send it back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Sam, Henry, Maya, and Grace. We're looking forward to see the Tufts volleyball team return to the court, hopefully sometime in the near future. Next up, it's time to talk baseball. After the Dodgers took down the Tampa Bay Rays in the 2020 World Series, the main focus on the MLB shifted to the award season and free agency. Here to talk baseball with me is Daniel Mahoney. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm happy to be here. Always a pleasure to have Daniel on the show. Now, as we speak, the first set of awards have already been announced. On November 3rd, the Gold Glove and Silver Slugger Awards were announced, with one player from each position from each league being acknowledged for their stellar offensive and defensive play. Daniel, what were your thoughts on the Gold Glove and Silver Slugger Awards? Are there any notable winners from these announcements? And did any of the finalists get snubbed? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned this week, the first set of awards were announced. Uh, on the American League side, I think the most interesting part to me just from a general standpoint, was that seven of the nine Gold Glove winners were first-time award winners. 
Um, so a lot of young faces, a lot of up-and-coming players. Um, and I think that's a good sign for um, for teams, you know, for the future. There were some familiar faces, though, uh, on the NL side with Mookie Betts and Nolan Arenado in the NL. Um, and, of course, Alex Gordon, who won his eighth career gold glove in his final season. Uh, he announced he was re- he will be retiring a couple months ago. Um, and so very nice to see a very good defensive player getting a final award there. Uh, the biggest surprise to me, I think, was in on the American League side in center field, rookie Luis Robert of the White Sox got the nod over uh, the Twins' Byron Buxton. Um, and there are a couple of other, even among the nominations, there were some surprises there. Uh, Kevin Kiermeyer of the American League Championship Rays um, wasn't even nominated. And uh, Jackie Bradley Jr., who I'm sure... Um, Many Red Sox fans around here are big fans of. Uh, he's been a defensive standout for the Red Sox, but he as well did not get nominated. Um, of course, Robert did put up a very good season, but uh, it was certainly interesting to see uh, a bit of a, an unproven face be given that award there over some of the uh, more familiar uh, center fielders in the American League. On the offensive side, again, some young talent making their names on the award stage. Of the 18 Silver Slugger winners, eight of them were first-timers, including some big names like Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, Tatis, alongside his teammate Manny Machado, both won their first Silver Slugger awards. Um, and that just shows sort of a microcosm of the Slam Diego nickname, which has grown for the Padres towards the end of the season certainly giving a lot to look forward to in future years for the Padres. Though, of course, in that division, it'll always be tough against the Dodgers, uh, coming off of a World Series title and have lots of powerful hitters for themselves. Uh, So Tatis also led all, all shortstops in many categories, including home runs, RBIs, and runs. Um, And he, he led in, and for uh, some of more the more analytical st- stats, uh, he led the all of the bigs in average exit velocity and hard hit percentage. So when he gets a hold of that ball, it's probably not coming back. The other team I notice here um, is the young players in Tim Anderson and Eloy Jimenez, of, again, of the Chicago White Sox. They both got awards there. Combined with MVP candidate Jose Abreu, um, they had three... Silver Slugger award winners, um, and they were they were really a team to watch. Uh, they fell off a bit at the end of the season um, and ended up dropping out of first place in the AL Central and unfortunately got bounced in the first round by the Oakland A's. Um, but certainly they have a, a good young team. The interesting thing with that, though, um, is that just recently they announced that they hired a new coach, Tony La Russa, um, after firing Rick Renteria a few weeks ago. And with such a young team, I find it very strange that Tony La Russa is the choice. Tony La Russa is 76 years old and has not coached since 2011. Um, and I, I feel a sort of dichotomy there, uh, separating the young future that is, uh, that's looking so bright for the White Sox um, 
And so there's been a lot of criticism of this Larusa choice for manager. Um, we'll see how it turns out. Personally, I I don't think Rick Renteria should have been fired so quickly. Um, but we'll see how it turns out. Awesome. So now, Daniel, even though the gold gloves and silver sluggers were already declared, the so-called bigger awards are still on the table. We've got the Cy Young Award, Rookie of the Year Award, Manager of the Year Award, and of course, the coveted MVP Award for each league. With the biggest awards to be announced in the upcoming week, do you have any predictions for who's going to win these big prizes? Yeah, so these are the, the big four awards that will be released one per day uh, over the next week. First up will be the Manager of the Year. The Manager of the Year Award is one that's really interesting to me because the the nominations and the choices for the winner are always sort of a mix between you know how well did the team do but also they give a lot of credit to managers that were able to do so well with so little at least in terms of expectations um sometimes in terms of like how much total salary is spent on the team in smaller markets and things like that so on the AL side i think it's pretty clear that Kevin Cash is going to win the Rays had an incredible regular season and they fell up uh, and they came just a bit short in the World Series. Of course, the most memorable moment from Kevin Cash most recently is his decision um, to take out Snell in Game 6 of the World Series, which might not seem like the, the correct managerial decision. But this is, this is a regular season award and Kevin Cash certainly... Um, you know, continually has done so well with the Rays lineup and, you know, with one of the smaller payroll payrolls across all of MLB. The other interesting nomination there was Rick Renteria, who I just mentioned. He was nominated for Manager of the Year for the Chicago White Sox after being fired just a few weeks earlier. On the NL side, again, you see interesting nominations where um, there's a lot more favor given to some of the younger coaches or coaches who are able to do do so well with so little. So that includes two rookie coaches, David Ross for the Cubs and Jace Tingler for the Padres, um, as well as veteran coach Don Mattingly for the Marlins, um, who surprised many people by making the playoffs um, despite having very low expectations for the Marlins this season and having a COVID scare that caused many delays in their scheduling but they did eventually make the playoffs before losing out in to the Braves um my prediction there i think i i'd have to give the nod to um tingler for the padres in terms of this is where it's a little bit funny where you have mattingly perhaps more impressive to to do so well without the bigger names on the Marlins. Um, but overall, the Padres season, even with superstars like Machado and Tatis, they still managed to um, excel and uh, exceed expectations um, in a sometime in a in a difficult decision with the Dodgers to deal with a um, they I believe had the second best record in all of the NL throughout the season. The next day after Manager of the Year will be Rookie of the Year awards. On the AL side, again, we see Luis Robert, who I mentioned earlier, for the White Sox, as well as Christian Javier of the Astros and Kyle Lewis of the Mariners. Uh, I believe 
I predict that Robert will come out with it. I of those three players, he had the highest WAR wins above replacement, which is uh, one of those catch-all analytics that these days people love to look at. Um, and on the National League side, we've got Alex Baum of the Phillies, Jake Cronworth of the Padres, and Devin Williams of the Brewers. I'm guessing that Cronworth will get the nod there again, in part just because he's part of uh, a team that did so much better than the others. The Padres doing so well, while the Phillies and Brewers, neither one able to make the playoffs. Up next will be the Cy Young. Uh, there have been so many great pitching performances this season both of the because of all the scheduling changes because of COVID-19 the the divisions only played within their own division and the corresponding division in the National League so for example the AL Central only played the other AL Central teams and the NL Central teams so you notice with four of these nominations come from those centrals with Bieber, Maeda, Bauer, and Darvish and I think that's representative of those central teams just not being quite as good in terms of they don't have um, as much hitting uh, prowess compared to some of the other divisions. And so I wonder if some of the voters will take that into account, considering DeGrom of the Mets perhaps didn't have as good of numbers um, as Bauer did for the Reds, but had much tougher competition. So I do wonder how voters will take that into account. Despite that, I think Bieber of the Indians will certainly still win for the AL, um, but I'm going to go out on a limb and pick DeGrom for the, of the Mets. And finally, uh, coming up next week is the MVP on the AL side, the three nominations are Jose Abreu of the White Sox, DJ LeMahieu of the Yankees, and Jose Ramirez of the Indians. Perhaps the most interesting part of this, not exactly a surprise, but just interesting throughout the season, Mike Trout, for only the second time in his career, was not nominated as one of the MVP candidates. Of course, Mike Trout didn't have his best season, so it's completely understandable, and it's not like he was snubbed or anything, but that just goes to show you how consistent and how great of a player Trout has been. In terms of a prediction, I think I'm going to have to go with Abreu. Lemehu really, really did great on the Yankees winning the AL batting title. Um, and I believe he became the first player to do that um, twice, once in the AL and in the NL, as he had previously done it for the Colorado Rockies. But overall, I think Abreu has had the more impressive season. And he's faced some really tough competition facing off against pitchers like Maeda and Bieber in the AL Central. On the NL side, I think it's a very interesting race between three really big names. We've got Mookie Betts of the Dodgers, Freddie Freeman of the Braves, and Manny Machado of the Padres. This is going to be a really close race. I think Betts might have the edge simply because he's... His team um, overall throughout the season had a better record, going winning over two-thirds of their games the Dodgers did throughout the season. And he has a previous MVP um, under his belt from his time on the Red Sox. However, um, of course, 
this sometimes gets into a dispute of what is MVP? Most valuable player, not necessarily um, just the best. So perhaps Freddie Freeman or Machado, you could argue, is more valuable to his team since the Dodgers were just so good already. But when it comes down to it, I think Betsy's going to take the nod. Of course, this is a regular season uh, award, so the, the voters did not take into account the results of the playoffs. The, the voting happened beforehand. But I still think Betts overall is going to take it with Freddie Freeman coming in a close second. Awesome. You know, as a Yankee fan, I have some strong feelings about Kevin Cash, and they're not all super positive, but some interesting points about some incredible baseball players. Now, even though the awards are super exciting to analyze, Daniel, I wanted to shift the conversation to a topic that's probably a little bit more important than the award season, free agency. With the season ending, of course, leaves many players looking for new contracts and many teams looking for ways to improve their rosters for next year. So, Daniel, as we head towards this offseason, what are some of the headlines to follow and who are the big free agents looking to sign some fat contracts this year? Yeah, so some of the biggest free agents that we're looking at are players I've already mentioned, people who have been nominated for some of the awards. There's Trevor Bauer, nominated for the Cy Young of the Reds. Um, he's clearly the the star pitcher on the free agency market this season. Um, and it, we'll see how what teams will be willing to pay for that. Of course, last season, there were a lot of big names as well with players like Garrett Cole going over to the Yankees. Um, and so with a bit of a s smaller crop of available um, elite star pitchers, we'll see if any teams really... Um, Perhaps it drives up the price for Trevor Bauer. Uh, I don't think he'll he'll break any records compared to some of the contracts like Cole's from last season. But um, he will probably be the biggest name, um, especially for teams trying to get over the hump. Maybe they're looking for some pitching. Um, on the offensive side, DJ LeMahieu, who I mentioned as an MVP candidate, is a free agent um, after this season. He had a short contract with the Yankees, and you might consider that a steal, that previous contract, as after what he's been able to do the past two seasons. Um, and certainly, after this season's incredible performance, MVP candidate, AL batting leader, I think that really drives up his price. Of course, the Yankees, they certainly have the money. They would be able to re-sign him if they, um, if they can. And I think, I think they will um, look to do that. I, I predict that he will end up staying with the Yankees. Another big name who's not technically a free agent this season, but is Francisco Lindor. Just came out that the Indians are interested in possibly trading him um, in the final season of his contract is coming up. This is just getting into a situation where they pretty much know that if they waited a year, they would lose him in free agency anyway. So they're trying to get as much as they can um, in return beforehand. Other than that, some of the bigger names include Marcelo Zuna, George Springer of the Astros, um, Michael Branley also of the Astros. That could be interesting considering how the Astros didn't put up as impressive of a season as perhaps they were expecting from the previous years. 
but they still did quite well in the playoffs, making the ALCS, Game 7 in the ALCS, in fact. But the question is, how long can they retain all of their core players? Um, and I, I'm not sure if they'll be able to... I don't expect those players to return. Other than um, some of those free agents, the other interesting news is related to uh, some new managers that have been hired. Um, with regards to the Astros, of course, there's the cheating scandal with the trash cans um, from a few seasons ago, and that resulted in a number of large penalties coming out for uh, some of their coaches at the time, namely A.J. Hinch was suspended for a year, as was Alex Cora, who was a assistant coach at the time for the Astros and later became the head coach of the Red Sox. Interestingly, though, now with a very recent announcement, both of these managers are back in the MLB. AJ Hinch was recently hired by the Detroit Tigers, and the Red Sox just earlier today, I believe, announced that Alex Cora will be returning uh, to the head coach position for the Red Sox. Now, I I really can't say I agree with the, these decisions. When after the announcements came out after the suspensions, the Red Sox made the decision to fire Cora immediately, and I think that was important to say. You know, even if the MLB's penalties weren't as steep as some people expected them to be. That was a way of saying, we don't want to associate with that. We want to move past it. Um, and clearly, they've just said, no, we just simply care. Not about perhaps any integrity, but you know, we just want Alex Cora back. Um, I think I'm sh he's a very good coach. But I think this decision and all the controversy surrounding him, including including both the uh, Astros scandal and the Red Sox smaller scandal um, in 2018, I just don't think that's the right the right face to be putting in front of the Red Sox right now, especially as the Red Sox after coming off of a not great season last year, looking for a bit of a rebuild, seeing if they can bounce back. I just don't think this is the right decision for them. But regardless, both of those head coaches coming back just one year after their uh, suspension and will be back in the MLB in 2021. Awesome stuff. You know, free agency, the offseason is always a super exciting part of any sports season. And with the MLB, that is no exception. Uh, Daniel, as always, it was a pleasure to talk baseball to you. Make sure to be on the lookout for the results of the MLB awards and free agency in the coming days. We'll see if your predictions are correct, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Finally today, we've got the NFL. The NFL season is nearing its halfway point, and here to talk to me about it is Trevor Russo. Trevor, how are you doing today? Oh, Andrew, it is, it is a uh, wondrous day, and uh, that is because Aaron Rodgers got me 29 fantasy points last night. But we'll get to that, and we'll get to all the NFL results around the league. Of course, uh, you know, this week you'd be uh, you'd pretty be pretty hard pressed to remember there was even the NFL. You know, usually in our culture, NFL is the most dominant thing. But obviously, the election results coming in uh, 
slowly and strongly. So, uh, but you know, NFL still going on. Uh, trade deadline was this week, and uh, we've got some pretty good matchups too. So, uh, I'd love to get into it with you. Well, yeah, let's get right into it. We just finished with week eight of the NFL season, and Trevor, um, is there any are there any um, games or results that that really stuck out to you um, from this past week of play? Uh, well, you know what, I think. Uh, if we're going to start out with some some notable games, uh, I guess there's no way to, nowhere else to start but Steelers-Ravens. You know, always a classic matchup between those two. Tough, gritty football. Uh, was pretty close for, for most of the game. The Steelers actually, I believe, came back and won it on, I, I believe it was a Chase Claypool touchdown uh, at the end of the game, yes, it was a Chase Claypool touchdown to win it, 28-24. Uh, ben Roethlisberger, a pretty, I wouldn't say efficient day through the air, 21 of 32, 182, and two touchdowns. Uh, Omar Jackson uh, had 16 rushes for 65 yards, 208 uh, passing yards and two touchdowns, but also two picks, which ultimately the uh, one of those was returned for six. So Lamar Jackson, I feel like he's having, he's not having uh, the, he's clearly not going to win MVP like he did last year. Uh, He's not having a terrible season by any stretch of the imagination. He's definitely still performing. Something just seems a little off though with the, uh, with the Ravens offense, you know, their, their yards are down, uh, I believe almost 40 to 50 yards per game on the ground. Uh, so that Greg Roman offense, while it still is innovative and they, they racked up almost, almost 300 rushing yards, uh, on the day against a very good Steelers defense that albeit was missing Devin Bush, uh, you know, uh, they, something definitely is, uh, is a little bit wrong there for Baltimore, but fortunately they've still got a very solid team. They're five and two looking easily at a wild card spot, but the Pittsburgh Steelers, the story of the entire year, getting Ben Roethlisberger back, you know, they, they've got that great defense and now they are seven and O still the only undefeated team left in the, uh, in the season as we head to the halfway point. Um, You know, uh, the 49ers continue to be (laughs) poor. You just feel so bad for them. Their entire lineup has just uh, either has COVID or is completely injured. Uh, they they lost uh, to the Seahawks in a game that is not as close as it appeared. Uh, most of the points of the 49ers scored actually came in garbage time in the fourth. And then finally, um, I think if we're talking about a result that's very like surprising if you followed the NFL for the last 20 years, but not surprising if you followed this Patriots team for this year, uh, the Patriots losing to the Bills 24 to 21 on a last-minute Cam Newton fumble. Uh, he ran to his right, was holding the ball in his right arm only, had it stripped, and the Bills recover to continue leading the AFC East at 6-2. and two. The Patriots, 2-5. and five. And uh, looking at, at uh, Football Outsiders, uh, one of my favorite analytics sites, playoff odds, I mean, if you told anyone that the New England Patriots only had an 8% chance to make the playoffs at the beginning of the season, even without Tom Brady, they'd be surprised. But this Patriots team is bad. 
this is a bad football team. Uh, they're they're clearly not what they were on defense without Dante Hightower. Stephon Gilmore has sort of seemed to check out a little bit. Their wide receiver situation might even be worse than last year with the fact that Julian Edelman has has uh, turned to dust after all these years. And uh, ultimately, they they don't have uh, their offensive line isn't as good. Uh, just everything seems worse. The Patriots offense, while it had those really great read option weeks to the, to start off. The year with Cam Newton, he's definitely they've they've sort of figured out what they want to do on the ground, and he has certainly regressed. Not to mention the fact that there's no weapons. It's just mind-boggling, you know, to see the New England Patriots after 20 years of dominance just might miss the miss the playoffs for only the second time in the millennium. Uh, and you know, you uh, you don't know when. Uh, you know, you never want to. You never know when history is going to arrive, and it looks like uh, history has arrived for the New England Patriots. I don't understand. I don't see how it gets better, especially the wide receiver position. Uh, we get into the trade deadline. Of course, they uh, the Pats did trade for Isaiah Ford, uh, trade a twenty twenty two seventh round pick. But honestly, I don't think that's enough, and I think the Patriots missed the playoffs, and I think it's pretty clear that they are. Honestly, a bottom third of the league football team at this point, which is shocking. Long yeah, rant yeah. on the Patriots, but but yeah, they. I think I think more than anything, they're just com- almost complete collapse has just been something to watch. Yeah, totally. Something really interesting to look out for. I mean, my whole life, the Patriots have been championship contenders, and seeing them falter at this stage, and, and the answers to that question, I mean, obviously, is is the departure of Tom Brady but Trevor the one question that I do have about another team here in the NFL is the Steelers currently sitting at seven and zero a perfect record so far and I mean this team looks so dominant in every game that they play uh, especially in their winning over the Ravens yesterday I mean last week Trevor do you think that the Steelers have a chance to go undefeated this year Hmm. now that is a good question that I have not actually Looked up the answer to. Listen, no team has gone undefeated in the regular season. There's only been two undefeated regular season teams. One of them, of course, being the uh, the Patriots back in. Oh God, I I hope I don't get this wrong. I believe it was uh was the 2011 Patriots, uh, and of course the 1972 Dolphins. Uh, the I believe the Indianapolis Colts almost. Excuse me, sorry, the 2007 Patriots. My I'm mixing up my uh, my childhood years here. Uh, but they, um, I mean, conceivably, they, they've just been able to play uh, so well on every facet of the game. Of course, they're, they've got great pass rushers off the edge with uh, TJ Watt and, uh, and uh, Cam Hayward. Um, they, you know, they can, uh, they're, they're not as great against the run as clearly we saw against Baltimore. Uh, they've got their cover corner situation with Joe Hayden and uh, and the number, I think it's Stevie Nelson. I'm not sure. Uh, I believe it's Stevie Nelson. Uh, is you know it's serviceable, but the they've got real strength at the linebacking core, especially uh, especially after round pick uh, to get Avery Williamson for that can only help while Devin Bush is injured uh, and. Ben Roethlisberger has just had, he has so many weapons to work with, whether it's James Conner in the backfield, he's got that good but aging offensive line, uh, Claypool, you've got uh, Ray Ray McLeod for 
for gadget plays. You have uh, Deontay Johnson, who, you know, if he stops getting hurt, could be a true number one wide receiver. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster in the slot for those easy completions. Uh, and Eric Ebron started to come in his own. I, I, this is a, uh, a good team. And actually looking at their schedule. So you've got Dallas, Cincinnati, Jacksonville, Baltimore, Washington, Buffalo, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Cleveland. These, uh, this, uh, this year, just looking at this was not a tough schedule, uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I think that's, uh, I mean, the only teams they've, uh, well, actually, no, they've, they've had decent competition from weeks four through eight. You know, they played Tennessee, they beat them. Philadelphia gave them a real test. Uh, of course, they fell short. Uh, but Cleveland, they handled. Uh, sorry, the Tennessee game got moved. That became their bye. Uh, they played Philadelphia, Cleveland, Tennessee, and Baltimore. And beat them all. Beating Tennessee and Baltimore back-to-back is no small feat. They played Dallas. Um, you know, bottom four, bottom three team in the league. That's that's a win. There's there's no way that they start Garrett Gilbert, the quarterback, and beat this Steelers team. Cincinnati, this is a little interesting. Uh, they haven't played Cincinnati yet, but Joe Burrow uh, has looked fantastic over the last three weeks. Uh, they just beat the Titans. Uh, so the Titans have had back-to-back losses, but uh, Joe Burrow, 249 yards, two touchdowns. Giovanni Bernard looking good. T. Higgins emerging. Uh, that could be a like a bit of a trap game, honestly. Uh, one of those two Cincinnati games. Jacksonville, they should be able to handle. Uh, Baltimore, I don't see them being beating Baltimore uh, twice in one season. That just doesn't seem like Pittsburgh, Baltimore to me. Uh, Washington, they should be able to beat. I think they're going to beat Buffalo, too. Buffalo's looked very shaky over the past couple weeks, especially with Josh Allen regressing a little bit. Um, I do believe they're going to beat Cincinnati once or twice. And I, I don't think there's any way they lose to Cleveland. Uh, Indianapolis, a little shaky. That's going to be a close game. Um, my prediction for them is I, I would say they, I think they drop the Baltimore game. Uh, I think they drop ones of Cincinnati too. I'm going to say 14 and two for the Steelers. I don't think they go undefeated though. They could, they really could. They've looked far and away like a top five team in the NFL. Um, actually, sorry, uh, they, they look like a, a top team in the NFL just by record and by advanced metrics. They have Pittsburgh at the second best team in the league, only to, uh, to Tampa Bay, actually. So long, long little segment there, but Steelers looking great. Yeah. 14 and two is my prediction. Super interesting take there, Trevor. Um, one more thing, um, that we wanted to, that I did want to talk about is this trade deadline that you were talking about. Trade deadline did just recently pass. And um, Trevor, were there any notable acquisitions that could make or make or break some teams' features um, this season? That's the thing, Andrew. There really were not many game-breaking trade acquisitions. Uh, I mean, on my uh, just looking through the list here, I believe the 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 biggest uh, trade capital that got swapped. Uh, before the deadline was a fifth round pick. Um, a lot of players, uh, there were a lot of trade rumors uh, around, you know, multiple players. Uh, Carlos Dunlap eventually did get traded to the Seahawks. That's going to be great for them as they've struggled in recent years to get pressure off the edge. Uh, Everson Griffin got traded to the Lions. Uh, actually, no, scratch that. We talked about this earlier. Yannick Ngakwe to the, uh, 
Oh, God. Where did Yannick Ngakwe go to? Uh, to the to the to the Ravens. Excuse me. That was a third round pick. But uh, a lot of just, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the the players that were most swapped, a lot of linebackers got traded around the league. Uh, you had Quan Alexander going to the Saints, of course, longtime San Francisco linebacker. Uh, in fact, the Saints actually shipped their linebacker, Kiko Alonso, uh, in exchange. Uh, uh, Tack McKinley didn't get traded. Uh, the Isaiah Ford to the Patriots, of course. You also had Avery Williamson going to the Steelers. Um, you have... Uh, actually, no, I think that's... Uh, I, I guess Marcus Golden... Um, the the Cardinals reacquired him from the uh, from the Giants, uh, so only two linebackers. Maybe it just seems like there's more linebackers getting traded than there are. But uh, uh, it's it's more notable actually for which players didn't get traded than which players did. Uh, there was notably a lot of uh, talk about the uh, about the uh, the Packers trying to acquire speedster Will Fuller from the Texans. That didn't end up happening. And you saw that uh, Aaron Rodgers was able to rack up 315 yards and four touchdowns without him. Uh, I would have actually liked to see the Packers trade for some sort of a, uh, either linebacker help or um, like a defensive tackle because they have been getting gashed in the run in the uh, the run game. Um, not against San Francisco, but San Francisco is uh, they are a travesty uh, with how many injuries they have. Um, you know, Zach Ertz was a uh, notable trade target for the Philadelphia Eagles, but uh, the Eagles mysteriously put him on IR, making him ineligible to be traded. A questionable move there by Howie Roseman. Uh, you have, uh, I believe, Stephon Gilmore was also the, uh, the subject of uh, trade rumors in New England. There was questions about his effort, questions about his declined play. The fact is that uh, the Patriots are most likely going to be drafting pretty high. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it was a very quiet deadline day. And I think this has to do more with uh, with COVID than anything else. I think that basically uh, you have, uh, you know, while you'll have uh, a lot of people trying to, I, I do think that COVID basically, uh, people want to really make sure not really, I guess, committing to the season as hard as it could, uh, we started to see uh, more and more players actually get coronavirus. You saw uh, like the 49ers had an outbreak. The the Green Bay Packers running back room had an outbreak. There's a couple cases on the, the Cardinals. There's a case on the Eagles. Uh, there's actually very quietly, there has been uh, a significant uptick in the amount of people being placed on the COVID-19 reserve list. And with that sort of variance, it remains hard for teams to say that they really want to commit. And I think that that teams kind of uh, just want to stay certain, especially now uh, if you trade away draft capital, then you miss out on the opportunity to get cheap players who could be uh, good quality players at a low cost. And the big thing to remember, uh, even more than the entire season, Andrew, is that the fact that uh, league revenues uh, have are expected to really go down this season due to the lack of in-person fans and uh, additionally some of the uh, they have the broadcasting revenue but with the lack of fans uh, and the uncertainty around the league and the potential for games to get canceled 
Uh, you had Desmond King got traded from the Chargers to the Titans. Uh, but yeah, that's that's my take. I think uh, coronavirus is actually the real reason. It's never been a splashy time, the NFL trade deadline, but this year has been uh, exceptional, I think, in that instance. Finally, Trevor, we just want to take a, look, a quick look at uh, next week's NFL games. Um, I guess by the time the podcast has released, a lot of the Week 9 games will be played already. But, um, Trevor, are there any matchups that really catch your eye as something that you want to look out for? All right, so we got Lions-Vikings. I wouldn't say that's exactly a barn burner. Uh, Panthers-Chiefs, I expect to be kind of a, a blowout. Uh, Ravens-Colts, that actually, I, I'd say that just looking through that Ravens Colts, the Colts have quietly played really well. Philip Rivers, I believe, uh, has thrown, I think it's nine touchdowns to one or two interceptions over his last three games, as opposed to one touchdown and two interceptions over his first couple. Uh, he's played really well. And the thing is, he's not really doing it with any one wide receiver. He's been able to spread the ball out uh, very well, especially last week. He threw two touchdowns to Naheem Hines. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, I would recommend you go to YouTube right now and search up Naheem Hines' touchdown celebration. He literally does like a triple, I don't know, I don't know what the terms are, triple axle backflip uh, to celebrate. He does it not once, but twice. And the man is 200 pounds doing it in football pads. It's truly, uh, I think that was my my sight of the week last, last week. I'd suggest you look it up, uh, Andrew, yourself. Uh, Seahawks-Bills also looks like a, a good matchup on paper, I think, but I think the Bills, the Bills have looked very bad the last two weeks. I, I'm coming out and say their their offense uh, has just ground to a halt, which is surprising. Uh, you know, considering that they've got a, uh, uh, I believe it's it's Brian Dable. Uh, 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 yeah, the OC of the the Bills is one that's a. Uh, really uh, highly like held in regard uh, Brian Dable and his offense. And it is ground to a halt, uh, especially um, in the running game, uh, except for last week against the Patriots. They had a much better effort. That game, uh, I'd say, looks good on paper. I don't know actually how good of a game that is, so I'm going to pass judgment on that. Um, the Bears and the Titans, that'll actually be a very interesting game, uh, especially as Tennessee has sort of uh, played down and you know lost a couple of games here looking a little more vulnerable. The Bears having that great defense. Maybe we'll see, get to see, you know, Khalil Mack and Akeem Hicks against Derrick Henry and that offensive line is going to be a really fun matchup to watch. So I'd pick that game. Uh, and then finally, I think uh, uh, there's, I'm going to pick two more games here. One of them, of course, Sunday night football. I think possibly the best matchup uh, behind Ravens Steelers that we've seen all year, Saints Buccaneers. You got Tom Brady, uh, you know, at six and two. Tampa Bay actually, uh, according to the advanced metrics, is the best team in the league going against their division rival Saints, who uh, have looked much shakier than they have in the past couple of years. But still, it's a division game, and the reason to watch it also is uh, is the return to the NFL of Antonio Brown starting Week Nine. Uh, especially with Chris Godwin suffering from that thumb injury. Uh, we'll see how much he's involved in the offense, uh, especially it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, my one sleeper game of the week is actually Dolphins Cardinals. Uh, and, you know, uh, past couple of years, the Dolphins, the Cardinals reputations have not been good to put it kindly, but the Dolphins quietly looking like one of uh, like a top, 
top tier team uh, potentially could make the playoffs if stuff breaks their way. Uh, Tua Tagovailoa also making his second start. Uh, didn't really have a chance to make his first start as uh, they they blew out the Los Angeles Rams last week. Tua barely got involved. Uh, and, of course, the Cardinals. You've got uh, Kyler Murray just playing at an amazing level. I'd say he actually should be in the running for some MVP consideration. Uh, and uh, the uh, actually the start of a potentially uh, very fruitful career for Chase Edmonds uh, taking over for Kenyon Drake after he had that ankle injury. Uh, and just the Cardinals are just a really fun team to watch. So I'd actually, I'd circle that game as my sleeper of the week. Uh, and one more thing, I'd just like to sneak this in at the end. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, uh, quietly, we haven't heard a lot about him. Patrick Mahomes' standard is just so high compared to every other player in the league. Um, and don't look now. I I believe after last week, Patrick Mahomes should be considered the MVP favorite. 21 touchdowns uh, to one interception, 7-1 and one their team is. Uh, you know, they've got a lot of weapons on offense, but he is just playing at an unreal level right now. And I think people are going to start to realize that <laughs> Patrick Mahomes, you know, exists. You, you forget about him until about week 15, then realize he's just the most talented quarterback in the league. Yep, super, super interesting. Uh, and once again, pleasure to talk to you, Trevor. Um, and likewise, yeah, thank likewise. you so much for coming on to the podcast again. Talk about the NFL. Of course. Uh, actually, just one, one quick little little thing. Gotta, of course, get my my weekly Eagles gripes in. Uh, they, uh, in and ab- probably the worst candidate for one of the worst football games of the last five years. Uh, completely played down to the uh, two and two and six Eagles uh, or, or Cowboys uh, in a game. They won 23 to nine should not have been that close. They were gifted a touchdown at the end. Carson Wentz uh, having in uh, the, the Cowboys, of course, starting Ben DiNucci, a seventh round rookie out of James Madison university. Uh, and Carson Wentz uh, was out, frankly, <laughs> almost outplayed by this seventh round rookie who was also terrible. Uh, Carson Wentz, 120, 123 yards, two touchdowns. Uh, the main thing on the day, four turnovers for the Eagles, uh, quote-unquote, at this point, franchise quarterback. Uh, two disgustingly bad interceptions, uh, two terrible fumbles. Uh, he is on a Jameis Winston-like tear for turning over the ball. And honestly, uh, I have to say, if if Carson Wentz was not locked down for the next three years as the Eagles quarterback, uh, he would be on the bench right now. Uh, statistically, the worst quarterback in the league, which is shocking from a guy, uh, you know, the heights he reached in 2017. It's uh, it's very sad to watch. It wouldn't be a Trevor Russo segment without a bit of Eagles talk, but yeah, oh, of again, course. Trevor, thank you once again for coming. It's on like therapy for me. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. And, and Trevor, um, we'll see you later. All right, see ya. And that is going to do it for this week's episode of the JumboCast podcast. We'd like to thank each and every one of you for coming out to support us here at JumboCast. And we hope to see you again next week. You know, even though we won't be broadcasting any traditional sports here at Tufts this semester, quick reminder that we will be streaming the Tufts League of Legends teams matches on our Twitch and YouTube channels Saturday at 3 p.m. So make sure to tune tune into those. Once again, I am Andrew Howe, and have a great day.